I'm going to Spurs for the first time this season today. I haven't made it to a game yet. And that's because I coach football at times when Spurs play football matches. Which is a bit of a shame to go to see them play less. Um, but simultaneously, like the extent to which I can affect the game at Spurs, pretty minimal. Whereas the teams that I coach and the players that I coach, when I'm coaching them, I feel like I'm having a bigger impact on what's going on. Um, and I think that's quite that's quite an interesting thing. Um, like I remember when I've chatted to to other coaches about like how they watch their team play. Um, what are they getting out of that? Like, are they getting out of that what just a regular fan gets out of it? Um, and that's not in like a, you know what I mean, I'm not trying to be like a, a kind of snobby dickhead about it. But like when I watch a football match, I'm probably seeing stuff that other people aren't. Um, so like, for example, we watched Arsenal-Liverpool a couple of weeks ago for my birthday. Watched it with Drew and Sam. And like when Drew was saying like when he watches it, it's, he's just got to be... Well, not got to be that. He just is a fan. He's not really thinking about anything tactically that's going on. If he's going to be able to pick up on that, it's got to be re-watching it and specifically looking for it. When I was in lockdown, I was speaking to Josh about how he goes about watching games. He's like, there's so much going on in a football match that if you actually want to take things away from it, you've got to really be specific and be clear on what you're looking for. Um, so you could watch a game and have so much stuff if you just decided, right, I'm going to look at the way that players receive passes. Like that's 90 minutes of work in itself. And then you could go back and watch a game again and think, right, I'm just looking for what the formations of these teams are when they have the ball and don't have the ball. Like that's a lot of stuff to be to be doing. Um, and it's funny actually, when I uh, went down to watch one of the Palace games, the under-15s that played Millwall, we were given these like... Um, I guess, tables to fill in with different um, attributes for different players. We were asked to pick a player and basically put down as much as we could regarding how they were getting on in the game. And I thought I'd filled in a fair bit, um, like technical, tactical, social, psychological, um, and some other specific bits about their position. And then one of the other coaches who's been there a lot longer than me showed me his bit of paper and there was basically no blank space he'd found so much going on in the game just because he knew how to watch football differently um so i thought that's quite an interesting point anyway the reason i bring that up to uh introduce the guests for today Stuart mcgill and vincent raisin um oh that's towards the end of this we got chatting about like who i support and whether i still go and watch them um, I said, oh, you know, I'm a Spurs fan, but this is probably the least engaged I've been in a Spurs season, despite us being pretty good. Um, and I said, that's not really about us um, and the way that we play. Like, I'm pretty happy watching any team who have clearly been coached, regardless of the style. Um, it's more that, like, for me, there is less... Like, I feel like I've got less in common with Spurs at the moment than I used to, and that's kind of that's apparent regardless of how good we are. And it's one of the things that we talk about in the podcast where you've got like the relationship between fans and their clubs and the owners um, and the principles that the club's founded on. And as they grow and develop, do those principles still exist? Does, does the club still represent 
the fans in the same way. Um, but then chucked in there, you've also got like, is the club any good? Um, and there's a really good um, <laughs> exchange between two fans. Um, I won't say which club it is because you might want to read the book. It's a pretty good read. Um, basically, like one of the fans says, uh, like no return to, I think it says no return to fascism. And then someone shouts back, like no return to the third division. It was like, yeah, you want your club to be against um, this stuff and stand for things, but you also don't want them to be rubbish. Um, so it's quite a nice idea. Um, thanks so much, Stuart and Vince. Really, really enjoyed meeting you and hearing about how you put it all together. Um, some of these trips are like they were just phenomenal. I'm incredibly envious of you being able to do all the travel, even um, with the difficulties that the pandemic chucked in. Um, but there's there's so much in there for anyone who likes football and who's interested in politics and travel and, and everything else that comes along with being a football fan. Um, so the Roaring Red Front, the world's top left-wing football clubs, um, is well worth a read when I post this. Um, I'll put a link to the book too. I uh, really hope you enjoy the episode. And anyone who uh, wants to start a football club with me, just give me a shout. Feel like I'm pretty per, in a pretty good position to do that now, off the back of some coaching experience, been involved in startups before. Um, yeah, we just got to find a bit of land big enough to build a stadium, ideally in zone one or two, just because I'm in Holloway and I don't want to travel too far. Um, but yeah, let me know. Uh, Vincent Stewart, thanks so much for taking the time to come on. I wanted to start with, like, I guess probably the biggest question for me going into this conversation was like, what makes a football club left wing and how do these clubs and the ones that you've outlined in the book, how do they maintain their identity as they grow and develop? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I think it comes from the fans largely. Uh, I think the management of most of these teams in the book are not particularly political. Uh, some of them are actually quite the opposite in, in a way in that then that they kind of oppose what what their, their fans do but it, it's um uh, with one or two exceptions like St Pauli it's just the fans who who uh, are driving the political direction and wanting to support you know um leftist causes whether it's Palestine or refugees or anti-fascism or anti-racism um and it's the the, the, the fans who maintain it with or without the support of the club yeah, I think also in St. Pauli's case, you're quite right there, but that left-wing nature of the management was driven by the fans because more and more people started going there who were alienated by the increasing Nazism in SV Hamburger. And that ethos basically took over the clubs and the people running the club now are the fans of 20-odd uh, you know, years ago, which is, again, a kind of unique thing about St. Pauli. We get asked this question quite a bit about what makes clubs left-wing and what is left-wing. It's a difficult issue because some of the clubs on there are borderline leftists, but we thought they were worth an investigation anyway. I think it's a fundamental belief in human equality um, across the races and an aversion towards fascism, Nazism, and the sort of massive inequality which is affecting the planet right now. That's a, a very broad definition, but I think that unifies most of the, the leftist clubs that we talked about, certainly their supporters. Okay, yeah, that's. I think that's a good place for us to start. Did you have, so you frame it in the book as like you start in 11 and then your subs. Did you have like major selection issues? Did you argue about who should be starting and who should be on the bench? And who was the, 
I guess, which clubs for each of you were the ones that you either thought should start or thought should be on the bench? Yeah, I think we uh, we had lots of discussions around Celtic, didn't we? Because uh, uh, also we were running into Celtic fans at every ground we went to. You know, um, like St. Pauli, they're kind of a touchstone. They're, you know, they're, they're everywhere and lots of St. Pauli fans and others go to Celtic Park. Um, so, yeah, we had lots of discussions about them before putting them on the bench, which was a little bit controversial because they do um, a lot of uh, work in the kind of areas that the clubs we're talking about do. Um, but there's no denying there's a sectarian element, which we didn't feel uh, sat uh, well enough with them getting in the first 11. Yeah, we had some very interesting discussions and uh, to a certain extent, it was, for me, it was dictated also by what stories do you want to tell? I mean, Celtic, the sectarian element is certainly there. We also didn't get any cooperation from the club or supporters groups. Uh, and also, it's a story which is quite familiar and well known. I wanted to have more foreign sides in there that people hadn't necessarily heard about. So both Palestino and Boca, borderline left wing, but they got an interesting story to tell, which we haven't really come across before. I think also, well, well most people haven't come across. I think also um, Standard Liège. We went there, and that's a proper left wing firm in a proper old industrial city, uh, but uh, we couldn't get into a game because they've been banned because of a big punch up with their local rival Charleroi. But I think that probably had we got into Liège, and it's still a ground I want to go ahead and see whenever they're allowed to let supporters in, they might have made it in. So it was dictated by circumstance as well, to an extent. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I couldn't help. <laughs> just feel like as I was reading it like this is surely got to be like the most fun it's possible to have like traveling around the world going to watch football in like in and and you're expecting to be in environments that you're going to enjoy the game in as well like how how much of it for you was like just the, the process of doing it all as opposed to having a, a book at the end of it that you well I'm guessing that you're pleased with yeah, yeah, we are. Uh, no, I can't lie. It was uh, it was fantastic fun, um, and obviously we love football, um, but we were made so welcome in, in in a lot of those places and in a lot of those um, towns. We couldn't buy a drink. People, you know, <laughs> you know, we were just um, you know given round after round and shots after shots, and uh, you know made made very welcome. And uh, you know, yeah, we couldn't help but have a fantastic time. So, I mean, the actual writing, that's different, uh, but the research was just brilliant fun. Yeah, the writing is tough, and I think that uh, it's... Um, I'm glad when people say, one, that it's quite readable, because you have to work very hard to make it an easy read, and also that... Um, we did, people say you sound like you had a great time. It was good that we were able to convey some of the joy of watching football in these places. And there had been a, a guest of these, generally speaking, very hospitable people. Uh, but just in case our wives are listening to this, it was in many ways very, very hard work, particularly traveling at the time of COVID. I think we forget some of the, the times we had there, Vince, uh, getting into Hamburg and having, what, three hours to fill in a Hamburg health form in German in bureaucratic German too. Yeah, it was not easy. Vince nearly um, missed his plane on the way back from Cadiz because we had to fill in some ridiculous form. 45 minutes trying to get an app to take my picture properly in Hamburg. So we could probably write a little kind of appendix sometime on the joys of traveling in a plague year. Yeah, the travel was stressful. There's no doubt about that. that yeah. added an extra layer to, to the book that we didn't expect. But, you know, it's maybe not that interesting. It's more interesting that it, that it was, you know, it was a joyous experience going to these places and I, you know you try you tend to remember the good times i don't know maybe stuart doesn't I don't know. 
I remember, I remember some serious hangovers. Yeah, and you of course remember the queue, which I'm sure we'll get to later. I, I, the queue has traumatised me. Yeah, let's 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 talk about the queue. Do you want to like maybe set up where that happens, why that happens, and your experience of the queue? Well, this was in uh, Vallecas, watching Raya Vallecano. Uh, I got up. I, I normally get up pretty early, but I thought, hell, I'm on holiday, so I'll have a little lie in, uh, and uh, I'll join the queue. And which I think they started selling tickets at 10. So I'll get there at about half past eight because I am famously too early for things. Uh, and as Vince, who's had the misfortune of traveling with me on numerous occasions, will testify, I'm a real pen in the ass to travel with. I get there so and there is an enormous, enormous queue. And I'm thinking, sod this, I don't want to join all this. In the end, I do because for the book, had it just, just been me, I'd have sort of sorry, I'll go for a beer. And it was about eight and a half hours there. Uh, a hell of a long time and I remember it got to two o'clock and I heard the guys talking I thought I misunderstood the Spanish but he said yeah they're closing enormous queue uh two two hours for siesta because certain Spanish traditions do not get done so everyone just sits down and people took this in a far better way than I did uh, and also most people in London did in Napoli this would have caused riots but the Vallecas people who are very it's a rough area, but they're a very nice, uh, gentle people in the main. Sat down there, had a few, had a few beers, had some lunch. Uh, I got matey with a bunch of guys in there at the end, and they were telling us about why the club does this. They want people to buy season tickets, basically, and you can't get anything on the net. So you want to get to a Rio game, and this was a, a big game against the local uh, left-wing rivals, Caddies, um, well, left-wing rivals and friends. Uh, then there was a huge queue and uh, lucky enough my acquaintances that I met in the queue helped me get in early the day afterwards I was trying to find a door to get in because you know you got about 8,000 people two gates open and I heard these guys call out Stuart and it was my new buddies that got me in there so I had a nice little ending to it but uh, those Vallecas fans go through that every couple of weeks trying to get tickets which is ridiculous and again Vince was talking about this earlier not all the people that run these clubs are sympathetic to the supporters, nor indeed their leftist views, by no means. Do you think that, like, which club do you think has the kind of best relationship between their kind of ownership management and their fans? Hmm, that's a good question. Probably either St. Pauli or Dulwich Hamlet, you know, because <laughs> both of them are basically run by fans. Um, I mean, they have that model in Germany where uh, 50% plus one um, has to own the club. I know there are some clubs that are bending the rules a bit, um, but it is a great model and it does mean that uh, the fans can't really be disenfranchised uh, in the way that they have been at um, Rio in particular. Um, but but uh, other clubs, you know, things like uh, at Liverpool, I know there's a, there's a good connection, but they did have that European Super League uh, thing going on, which, which showed they didn't really get it. Um, thankfully, the fans were able to make their voice known sufficiently to uh, put the kibosh on that. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I'd say St. Pauli and uh, Dulwich Hamlet. I think definitely those two, yeah. I think at Liverpool, certainly after the Super League debacle, uh, there was more contact between the spirit of Shankly. It's a supporters group, but they call themselves a supporters trade union. Uh, and uh, they now have a better relationship with the club management and they put together a I guess a modus operandum which helps ensure that the supporters uh, do have a say and they do have a I think a veto over any decision which would drastically change the character of the club. 
So they put together an interesting model. I think Liverpool is such a... I don't, I don't think in England we talk about Liverpool as being left-wing enough. Like, I think probably because they're such a big club and they've had, like, that kind of level of success that maybe, okay, maybe not City, but United, like, these are kind of, I think most people look at them as, like, pretty capitalist, like, traditional mm. models of football club ownership and would say, okay, that's how you've got to be to try and, like, compete on on these fronts, on these levels. Like, do you, I guess, do you think the relationship between, like, the City and the City's club is one that is like is that unique to liverpool in the uk because i know you've been around the world and you've seen it in other places and like maybe more left-wing cities are more likely to have more left-wing teams hmm uh yeah that's an interesting one yeah um i don't know i mean they, they obviously are a massive capitalist organization that um and they're part of a premier league that is you know is essentially elite and has cut money off from grassroots football so there's no there's no getting around uh, you know what what the club is as a business and it you know it is just a business um but yeah so i don't know that the the fans of uh, liverpool are have a stronger bond to the club than say the the fans of cadiz who are also you know a left-wing side and and feel their politics very deeply um possibly uh, there's probably more Kind of leftism in Cardiff than um, than given the, the vast number of Liverpool fans. Maybe in the city it's different because uh, it is a left leaning city. Uh, it always um, votes Labour and is still kind of anti Murdoch, um, which uh, which is something I respect about them. Um, so yeah, I'm I, I'm not sure that they're that they're any more than uh, any other club. But in, interesting, we had a question from Andy Burnham. Who who wanted to know why Everton weren't in there? You know because they have, uh, um, you know, it's the same. They, they share the city. They have they, they do have quite similar values, but they probably don't get as as much uh, credit for their left credentials as Liverpool. Well, I think Liverpool is a left leaning city, and certainly Liverpool FC, the Reds, uh, they the, the support or a large part of the support does volubly and visibly demonstrate that affinity with left-wing ideas. Everton don't, partly because, and I speak here as a bit of a part-time Everton fan, we're all involved in the psychodrama of Everton's collapse from greatness into mid-table mediocrity. So there's a little bit more focus there on the depression about the football. Whereas Liverpool is going through a good time right now. It's been reflected in support for the RMT, the Dockers, and for various left-wing causes. There's a city radicalised by its recent history. Uh, with someone like Celtic, uh, obviously Celtic uh, reflects the support for Republican and also Palestinian causes, and it's a traditional left-wing city. But I know plenty of Rangers fans who are very left-wing as well, so it's not just Celtic fans, but Celtic fans tend to be more voluble about it. Interesting, a section of Rangers support has become quite pro-Israel, quite right-wing, uh, and of course anti-Republican, uh, in opposition to Celtic becoming more leftist, pro-Palestinian. Uh, you'll see um, Israeli flags at Rangers games these days, all over the north of Ireland now. Villages that have traditionally flied Union flag will also fly an Israel flag as well. You haven't got that in Liverpool with Everton fans becoming more right-wing, uh, partly because the relationship between the fans is better and it tends to be a more left-wing city. So, uh, yeah, I think there is an intimate relationship between the politics of the area and the politics of the fans, but 
as we discussed earlier, earlier that the clubs don't always reflect that relationship or the politics. And then, and then with those relationships, like a, a lot of the clubs and from like reading the conversations you have with fans, they kind of, well, my sense is like, oh, we don't really care about the, like, we don't care how good we are. We're just happy that we're supporting a team that like that can kind of reflect mm-hmm. our value. To what extent do you think that's actually true? Because I, as a football fan, would mm-hmm. quite want my team to be good. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's true uh, in non-league, perhaps, you know, people don't take it quite so seriously. It's not the three points isn't the be all and end all. It's not going to ruin your weekend if you draw at home to Macclesfield. Um, but uh, yeah, I think in the top flight of mostly success is quite important. But um, we had, a, a, as you read, we had that interview with the St. Pauli chairman and uh, he was saying, yeah, we sh- there's nothing wrong with winning. You know, it's a competitive sport. That's what we want to do. If we can get into the Bundesliga, if we can get to Europe, then we can spread our values further. So, uh, yeah, th- there's, yeah, nothing wrong with wanting your team to win. Yeah, I still think people want to win. I think I put a wee story in the St. Pauli bit about they were talking about no to fascism and some guy shouts out, well, I know to the third division. No to the third division. <laughs> yeah, so I think you still want the side to do well. I mean, I would hate Celtic to go ahead and adopt values, uh, the supporters and the club that I don't agree with, but I'd also hate them uh, to be, well, any more crap than they are now. And so I don't like Celtic to do better in the Champions League and get the occasional away victory. So, yeah, you still want the, the club and the sides to do well. Um, I think it's important, but also to do well. Like, I wouldn't like Celtic um, to do well the way that someone like uh, Chelsea or City have to be taken over by a particularly obnoxious bunch of individuals and spend an awful lot of dough depriving other players. I just don't think that should happen. And another podcast maybe, but something about the rules of the game should forbid that from happening because it makes the game a bit of a travesty. You you mentioned before wanting the like the book to read well, and I think it really really does. I love the way the chapters are kind of split up between like the city, the fans, the game, the like all of that's really really good. Were there games that you went to, or I guess which of the games that you went to did you feel like the fans had the biggest outcome on the match itself? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, because I guess um, I mean uh, I think atmosphere wise. Probably uh, some Pauli were the most vociferous, but then we, we've been there. We, they've, they're always loud. They're, there's always lots of flares. There's always lots of uh, pyro and stuff. But uh, we've seen them uh, be crap at home, and uh, we've seen them be great. Um, yeah, I think it's yeah. I mean, you never know how 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 much uh, influence the crowd can have. You hope they're the twelfth man. I'm sure they. I'm sure they're. Um, very valuable at Celtic Park, um, but uh, yeah, in some 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 big grounds, they can be quite toxic if it's not going well. You know, if you if you're playing someone who you think you should be beating and you're not, you know, those crowds can turn against you. Yeah, Bucker, the atmosphere was fantastic, and one hundred percent behind Bucker, a very good natured crowd too, despite the reputation of Argentina and some of the supporters. Uh, but the side just isn't very good, didn't play particularly well. Uh, Sampoli, they make a difference maybe in that game against Hansa Rostock, who were a bunch of uh, Nazis and the atmosphere was particularly vociferous, but Sampoli were just a better side. I don't particularly believe that 
good fans can make a good team any better. They can bring a team down. At Cosenza, the atmosphere was pretty grim because uh, we went towards the start of the December COVID period. So there were many people there, particularly in the kind of anarchist uh, South Curve that we went to, hadn't had vaccinations. That's another thing. You had that. You had, pretty much everywhere we went, you had to show a pass that you had a vaccine to get into the ground. And that caused me a problem at Palestino later. But uh, the Cosenza crowd certainly made a difference at the end because they were sufficiently angry with the side. They demanded they come down and stand for five minutes while they were admonished by the supporters group. So uh, that, I think, afforded a certain toxic atmosphere. I think that was by far the worst game we saw, Vince. It was a terrible game. It was. Game. It was a terrible game, yeah. I mean, <laughs> genuinely, they, they were really poor. I think they may have had like four or five lone players in the team. Um, and uh, yeah, they looked like they didn't. They weren't really a team. And uh, I think the manager set, uh, lost his job shortly after that. And uh, but they they pulled themselves up, managed to avoid relegation, going okay in Serie B now. Yeah, yeah. And that all that being said, that was a, a maybe a negative aspect of the Cosenza support. We had a fantastic time in the city and in the ground too. Really interesting bunch of people. And again, getting back to your earlier question there, mate. This is a a left wing city. So in a right-wing country and also in a right-wing area, uh, it was apparently the un it's a big university in Casenza, which you don't see. It's kind of behind the hill and a few professors there and the general political, um, I guess the general political radiance of the university has turned the turn into a bit of a leftist oasis in an otherwise quite right-leaning country and, and, uh, and, and region. So many of these things can go together to influence in the supporters and the club. So on that then, like, so you mentioned Andy Burnham. Andy Burnham is an Everton fan, isn't he? He is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And he's mayor of Manchester, right? He's great. Uh, great yes, Manchester. he is. Yes, so, amazingly, yes. <laughs> so, like, it, it feels like Labour Party in the UK are kind of in a pretty good position to do well at the next election. Yeah. Which, like, suggests that, okay, the UK is about to... Okay, maybe not actually, but like at least on the surface, like become more left wing in that the government is going to be more left wing in a year, two years time than the, the current government. Like we can argue about like how left wing the Labour Party are. That's that's fine. That's probably another another podcast. But do you do you think there's a shift in in what because like what is categorized as left wing if there's a Labour government or if there's a Conservative government? Like, does that affect the the discourse around what is left wing in football, I guess, is my question. Yeah, I guess the centre line kind of moves when the. I mean, the, I think that the, the Tory party has been moving progressively to the right for a long time, and it's just it's reached a point where it's it's gone too far for for moderate Britons who are not particularly uh, right wing, uh, more centrist, and uh, yeah, so I think. Um, yeah, I think as a country, uh, there is often this kind of cycle of, uh, you know, it, it goes one way for a while and then it, it swings back again. We never go get particularly far to the left, a bit like America, which is even more right wing than us. Um, but yeah, I think the, the line of the centre moves between the centre and the right all the time. Uh, yeah, I can't understand how anybody regards, when I speak here as a proper lefty, I can't understand how anybody regards Starmer as anything remotely uh, left-wing. Years ago, I remember Harold Wilson, who would be seen as a complete and utter radical 
by this Labour Party. He nationalised steel in 67. Uh, Clement Attlee nationalised a large part of the economy. And uh, again, he's seen as, at the time, was seen as a Labour moderate. He took over from George Lansbury, who was a kind of Corbyn-like figure in those days. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's <clears throat> it's all relative. I think that um, when you look at what this government is trying to do, some of the recent attempt to implement right-wing libertarian economics, it's clear that it's tosh, and even the Tory party recognised this tosh, which is why Hunt stepped in to go ahead and try and sort the mess out. Uh, I, I don't know what this Labour... Labour should win, they shouldn't cock it up. Whether they change anything fundamental or not, I really doubt that, because Starmer's an establishment figure who was conservative, I think, with a small c. And Rachel Reeves prides herself on being the fiscally disciplined chancellor who said that Labour was not the party of unemployed people. So I don't hold out too many hopes, but they will be better than the current show. Mm-hmm. And it'll probably be reflected in football crowds, I guess, it, you know, but I, I, I don't think it will make a huge difference to, to, to football. Yeah, because towards the end, you kind of talk about a little bit about like, you know, this question and maybe like you could have a tell, tell me what you think now. Like what, you know, there's a question like, why is football so right wing? Why, why are football fans considered to be so right wing? And I guess, therefore, why is it like a kind of rare, special book that you've been able to travel around the world and find left-wing clubs presumably that means that most clubs are not left-wing that's true yeah i mean i, I think we all are familiar with the the more right-wing elements of football teams like lazio and uh, uh Beitar jerusalem uh, i think people do kind of think of of like um football ultras as being right-wing um and uh, yeah, I, I guess that the rise of uh, left-wing football at somewhere like St. Pauli is, is a response to that. And uh, same with uh, Livorno in Italy uh, as a response to, to there's, there are far more right-wing firms in Italy than, uh, than left. There's two or three there. I think it's, a, it's an interesting point. Uh, Livorno, Livorno was the birthplace of the Italian Communist Party. So it's a traditionally leftist city and they do reflect that. Um, Cosenza, the influence of the university. When you look at someone like St. Pauli, a very minor club, a bohemian area, it became more left-wing because more people started going to the area, uh, anarchists, squatters, etc. And also because more Nazis started to go ahead and make their home in SV Hamburger. And it seems odd to us to leave your club. If you're next to a bunch of Nazis every week, people are going to be inclined to do so. Uh, Celtic, I think partly because of the uh, Irish Republican element and the sympathy for the Palestinian cause and Glasgow, the traditionally left-wing city anyway. So these various factors go to make club left-wing. In the conclusion, we talk about why so many are right-wing. It tends to be because people admire toughness, aggression. It's a tribalistic thing and there's a serious racist element in there as well. And maybe we haven't got time to go through it in detail now, but the German fan project recognized this was a problem with German ultras and they went in and made a conscious effort to do something about this. Not with 100% success, but with significantly more success uh, than we had because we did nothing about the growing right wing trend and Italy as well. In uh, AC Milan used to be a bit of a left wing firm, flew Che Guevara flags, that's all gone. Both Lazio and Roma now have serious right-wing elements in there. Football matters and the role models that people encounter when they go to football matter to how people think. Like, I talked there about uh, a kid that my son used to go to school with. Went to West Ham and he's turned into, uh, he's got a bunch of dodgy West Ham fans, right-wing England supporting idiot. Had he gone to Dulwich Hamlet, 
he could have become a nice pink old liberal like you, Vince. <laughs> so, so these things do make a difference and the role models for young men make a difference. So football does matter. Uh, and I think I, I've seen throughout the book, actually, something that people haven't really talked about enough, in my view. We talk about how football does matter. This is just not an entertainment. Football is very important to many people and it can be used. Like if I were a, uh, a Labour politician looking for election just now, I would do something about the various abuses of football fans that take place in every week. Like my Met, West Ham get a decent result. They, they're going to go to, I forget where it was, they're going to fly for a European Leon, right? final. Sorry? Was it Leon? No. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Else. And the price went from something like, um, I think maybe 100 quid to 900 quid to get the cross there. I mean, fans get abused ridiculously. Five shirts coming out per season. So your kids need to buy all the five shirts. This sort of thing should be stopped. Yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of needs, leads me pretty nicely onto something that I'm, I'm, I've, well, when I initially knew that I was going to get the chance to speak to you, I was quite keen to hear from you both. Was like, if you were going to start a football club together from scratch, what would be like your pillars, your non-negotiables, your fundamentals, your philosophy? And of the clubs that you visit in the book, which would you look to try and replicate and emulate? Wow. So what, starting a football club from scratch? Yes. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess the area you do it in is very important because you have to reflect where you are. You know, um, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to uh, start a football club in Belgravia, for instance. It might be a, a very different crowd uh, to the one I'd like to attract, you know. Um, so, yeah, uh, decent working class area with, uh, you know, uh, hotbed of football talent. <laughs> I think I do something like the Napoli United guys have done. You've got four or five guys there who are really committed to the cause. It's not a big club uh, and they're all big uh, Napoli fans as well. But uh, they started something pretty damn good there, which started basically as a refugee team. It's grown from that into a club which now has a chance of getting into uh, the Italian top flight. I think they're in the Excellenza, the same rank as, uh, as Livorno now. So they have grown and I asked them, what will you do to make sure you keep your principles? And they said, as long as the five of us are here, we will never lose those principles. Now, you have to in some way make sure that's enshrined in the Constitution, that you can't sell out, etc. And certain other clubs I know uh, have begun with the same principles, but they've ended up with the usual internecine left wing arguments and so on. But I would start like Napoli United. The problem is, um, do you keep your soul as you get bigger? Uh, and Dulwich Hamlet has this issue to a certain extent uh, and probably Natalie United will be later. So you need to enshrine some elements there that you will not sell out to these people. And if you do sell your shares in the club, you will share them to somebody else that the rest of us agree upon. I think that's important, like uh, as a club develops, being able to keep true to it, to its roots. Uh, lots of clubs struggle with success. It, you know, it can kind of corrupt you. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a very hard thing to do. Josh, can I um, ask you a question? Having read the book, I'm always interested in people's um, answers to this. Of all the clubs we talk about in there, which one would you most like to visit next? Oh, uh, Boca, no question. But really? I think that's, yeah, yeah, I think that's because, so I, I studied Spanish at university and I did a year living in Catalonia and I was like, it, it didn't take me long to get pretty, I guess, seduced by this kind of like, separatist that's franco's country we're a different people over here um and so like for me if i'm going to go somewhere new it's probably going to be a spanish-speaking country just because i i've like got that part of me 
Um, and yeah, I just like the descriptions of the, the match day in that chapter are like, yeah, I think, I think that's where I'd want to go. But saying that I'm like, I still haven't been to a Dulwich Hamlet game and that's, you know, I'm talking about <laughs> going to Argentina when I could just get a train to <laughs> South London. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, the one that I'd want to go to, go to and make a proper trip of it would be Boca, but like the club that I should be looking to try and get down to and at least experience it a bit would be, would be Dulwich, I think. Uh, if yeah, you're going to Delhi, go, go on a Tuesday night rather than a Saturday. Yeah. The, the Saturdays are, are packed and, uh, yeah, there's a lot of sort of casual friends who aren't so interested, uh, casual fans who aren't so interested in, in the game. Um, the Tuesday nights are much more fun and, uh, yeah, not uh, completely sold out either. So this is, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. This so this is metaphorically, yeah. So I was going to ask about that. So there's this, like, Obviously, Premier League football's it's it's different. You can't drink in view of the pitch. That's like a you just you just can't do that. But mm. you can drink in view of the pitch at a rugby game, or you can yeah. and you can drink at these other sports. To me, there's clearly like a huge class element there, and I wondered if he, either of you wanted to maybe explore that or explain that a little bit. Sure, I mean it, it is a class element, um, but they are probably right that we can't be trusted in in you know football fans in vast numbers can't be trusted to behave on uh, six pints of strong lager, you know. Um, I don't know why it's different in, in, in non-league. Obviously, there's smaller crowds, um, probably not drinking lager either. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is ridiculous. They go up a league into the conference. They can no longer, you can no longer drink by the pitch. You know, they're the same people. It's, it, it, it's absurd, yeah. Yeah, it's a cultural thing. I used to get quite... Uh, angry about this but in all honesty yeah given the history of uh, agro at football uh, I don't think it's fueled so much by drink so much anymore but it's, it may be a combination of drink and cocaine but uh, yeah it happens more at football you look at a working class sport like rugby league it very seldom happens there because that's the culture uh, and as we say in the book and partly an answer to your question before Josh about why football so right wing we're social creatures. We become like the people around us. I watch a Celtic Rangers game, particularly with people. I become a 90-minute bigot. After that, I'll call up my Rangers-supporting friends and commiserate them on one other grinding defeat. But football can bring the worst <laughs> the worst out in all of us, I think. Mm. Um, thank you so much, both of you. I really enjoyed it. I, so, I, like, a bit of context. So, I coach, I coach football. That's my job. So, I coach... Uh, like a pretty, I guess, kind of bottom-up grassroots club who play in like non-league step six. Um, so that's what I do on a Saturday. So I probably wouldn't get down to Dulwich on a Saturday anyway. Um, I also coach for like an academy. We've got links with Millwall, so South East London. I coach like a grassroots football club for women and non-binary people. Um, we're based in East London. And then I'm at the like Crystal Palace Academy pathway. So I feel like I've got my, I'm kind of all around the kind of, that sort of London scene I feel like I've got a sense of it and I think the thing I enjoyed most about the book was just that it like reminded me that there's so much football out there and that like any sort of um like aspirations I've got about like traveling to other places and experiencing football be it as a coach be it as a as a fan like it's really really doable um so yeah I just wanted to say thanks for transporting me around the world I suppose over the last week I'm really glad you enjoyed it so much and got all that out of it. Thanks for having us on, Josh. My pleasure. Uh, this will be up next Sunday. I'll send you a. Uh,